my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A. And I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Before we start our show today, I wanted to share that we have started a YouTube channel and three mornings a week, Amy and I do chit chat with Sam and Amy, where we talk about our lives as working moms, the messy parts of our lives and current events and all sorts of stuff that I think you will relate to. And we also put videos up of many of our interviews, sort of the unseen footage and maybe things that had been left on the cutting room floor. So please look for us on YouTube. We would love to have you interact with us there and you can subscribe to our channel. So it was really fun to sit down with Lori Gottlieb today. And before we do, Amy, I just wanted to know what your history with therapy is like. Ah, therapy. So it's interesting. I grew up in the 80s in the Midwest. Therapy wasn't really much of a thing. 
wasn't something I grew up knowing that people went to. My parents got divorced when I was in high school, and I went to therapy. And at the time, I thought my job was to get out of therapy, to say, like, I'm cool, I'm fine, nothing to see here. <laughs> so that's really how I kind of handled it. And then then I didn't really go to therapy again until, oh, my husband's going to kill me. But we've done couples therapy be- before. Um, we both had really different childhoods. We met in our 30s, and we had careers and lives, and we had to kind of combine lives in a way that took took some talking. I think is the way to say it. But I'm not in therapy now, though I think I should be, especially after this conversation. <laughs> but um, what uh, are you in therapy? Before I answer your question, Amy, I just want to go back to something you said, which is that your husband, Carl, would be upset if you revealed that he was in couples therapy. Why? Okay, great. Let's let's really hone in on this so he can be extra upset with me. Thanks, Sam. Um, I think, I mean, I don't know. I just, well, he's... He's a private person, but I don't know. I think that, you know, men and my husband being like, if you're going to think of a dude, that's Carl, right? Like six four, college ice hockey player in commercial real estate. Uh, and he just I think it's hard for him to acknowledge emotional vulnerability. And I think that for a lot of people, particularly Carl's also from the Midwest, like maybe it's where we grew up. But therapy seems like somehow emotionally vulnerable, even just going in the first place. Which was interesting because our guest, Lori Gottlieb, who wrote the best-selling book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, she does talk a lot about in our interview about the fact that she feels like men are, are put in this box where they have to pretend they're strong and, and that the biggest form of strength is to admit that you have weakness and to go seek help. So, it, yeah. But that's going to be a, a, a long road to convince the majority of men of that. I think it is a big thing. But so you can stop avoiding my question. Sam, are you in therapy? <laughs> so I have been in therapy at various times in my life. I think the first time I went to therapy was uh, – during college, at one point at the end of college, when my former tennis coach um, was discovered to be a pedophile, my parents sent me to therapy in Boston. Um, and I remember like hating the experience. And then over different um, periods of my life, I went dipped in and out of therapy. Um, I remember at the end of one big relationship in my life, I went into therapy. I think I was like 29 and crying that I would never meet someone and never have kids. And, you know, it was that. Oh my that gosh. I definitely space. cried about that at the age of 29 too, but didn't go to therapy. <laughs> Even though now that seems absurdly young to worry about that stuff. But, uh, and then I, and then most recently, I think it was like a two years ago that I started going to therapy in LA. And then once COVID hit, I just abruptly stopped because I feel, I don't know, it's my own complex, but I feel like I have no privacy in my home. Hmm. So I don't even feel like I have privacy to talk to a therapist in the sense that like there's three kids, my husband, we're all in the house together all the time. And it just doesn't feel like I have the space to do that. I know that sometimes my kids will say they're listening at my door. (laughs) It's like natural. And, and I just feel like I don't want to be like whispering in a closet to a therapist. It seems antithetical to the purpose of it. But you know, if this lasts much longer, maybe I'll... (laughs) Maybe you'll gear Maybe back I'll, up. I'll find that closet. Yeah, it's hard for me. So, you know, with my company, with The Riveter, I have a, a, I am pretty public and I'm on Instagram all the time and I talk about all of these things, but I've found myself at certain points telling like a narrative about my own life. And I feel like sometimes I've approached it that way in therapy rather than just talking about what's going on in my life. Like, 
here's the narrative I'm going to tell you because it's more comfortable for me to couch it in a story. And I think that's really interesting to hear Lori, with her expertise, talk about what stories are to people and the narratives that we untruthfully tell. Hey, I'm Lori Gottlieb. I am the author of Maybe You Should Talk to Someone and the co-host of the Dear Therapist podcast. And I am so excited to have this conversation on What's Her Story with Sam and Amy. First of all, it must be a very strange thing to be a therapist during a pandemic and such a public one at that. What has this been like for you and for the people around you? A lot of people are finally realizing that emotional health matters. And, you know, it, it's interesting because in, in my book, I, I treat this woman, Julie, who uh, gets a cancer diagnosis and she's young and she says, you know, why is it that people need a terminal diagnosis to really see what's important to them? And I feel the same way about the pandemic. It's sort of like, you know, it took a global pandemic for us to realize that, you know, who is important to us, what is important to us, um, you know, how do we take care of ourselves? So I think if there's any positive outcome that we will leave with when we emerge from this, it's that we are going to be focused more on the things that are important. Have any relationships in your life changed? Have you lost any relationships, figured out what's more important? I think like everybody, what I've noticed is that the people who really matter to me have become even closer to me, that we're noticing who are the people who nurture me, who are the people who nourish me, and vice versa. And then who are the people where we don't feel refreshed? Um, by those relationships. And, and I think that we're realizing we can kind of not focus our energies in those directions. So again, those are, those are, that comes with the reprioritization that I think we're all going through right now. Sam, I've gotten to know you so much better during the pandemic because we've spent quality time every day. Definitely. I agree. I feel like the world has narrowed where I'm the sort of I guess I call them frivolous relationships where you say hi and bye and you have chit chat. Those are kind of gone from my life. I see very few people and the ones that I'm in close touch with are so important to me and I lean on them probably more than I used to, including you, Eam. I lean on you a lot and I think vice versa. It's so nice that we have this. One of the things, Lori, that I remember so vividly from your book is it felt like you had such a big life in addition to the lives of your patients and you so beautifully intertwined them. I wonder what that feels like now that life is almost standing still. How have you managed to keep up the pace of your own life and just fe the feeling of moving forward? I was able to move my therapy practice to my laptop, which is not ideal, but certainly better than not having it. And I think during COVID, people especially are wanting to have the continuation of that emotional support. We've all had to be incredibly adaptable and flexible during this time. So I have my podcast too. And so that went from studio to home. I can write my column, my weekly column in The Atlantic. I can write that from anywhere. I'm writing a new book and I can write that from anywhere. So for me, the professional adjustment hasn't been as great as the personal adjustment. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. 
Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am, like I am, where it is. This isn't going to work. I, I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, if, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s. She looked like a million bucks. With zero qualifications. She had a Harvard plaque. Tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. That this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately $11 million. Nearly $10 million was all gone. Employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich man because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's your new book going to be about? 
Well, and maybe you should talk to someone. I bring people into the therapy room and you see people individually. But what most people don't know is that what got left on the cutting room floor was a couple that was sort of the the sixth patient in the book. So the book has four patients that I follow. I'm the fifth patient as I go to my own therapy. And then there was this other patient, which was a couple. And the book, when I turned it in, was like an obscene 600 pages or something, and I got it down to 400. Um, and, um, and I just couldn't put the couple in there. But I feel like we are so, I think we are most revealed in connection with others, right? Through the lens of other people. And so when people come in as individuals and they tell me their story, and my TED talk was about this, about how we're all unreliable narrators of our mm -hmm. own lives, and I'm only getting part of the story. And I think that when people come in individually, I know that there's another version of the story out there, and I have to kind of work to fill that in. When I see a couple, I learn so much about each person individually just by watching them interact with someone with whom they need to be vulnerable. There's so much beauty in that, in the taking off the mask, in the really revealing the truth of who we are to someone who really matters. So it's one thing to do it to your therapist, and of course your therapist matters, but it's another to do it with the person that means the most to you, which is your partner. Laurie, who reveals you the most? What relationship in your life brings the most out in you? I would definitely say being a parent has been an incredibly revealing experience. Um, and I think that's common to a lot of parents where your kids hold up a mirror to you and you see everything, not the way necessarily you want to be seen, but the way that you are seen. A lot of um, you know things that we haven't worked out in our own lives start to come out when we're parents, even if they haven't come out in any other way for years. When you've got those kids in front of you, it's a very, it brings up a lot of things that just were laying dormant. So um, I think in a great way, our kids reveal us because they force us to really examine ourselves and be our, our highest selves at times when it's really hard. But let's get down and dirty. You have a teenager. We both have ninth graders. <laughs> How do you manage the roller coaster of hormones and that relationship without letting it impact your mood swings and, and your happiness? Well, first of all, if there's anything that's contagious in a household, it's the emotional tenor of the household. So if you're anxious, that spreads like wildfire. Anxiety in a household spreads like wildfire. Um, and so I think it's really important to make sure that you are taking care of yourself. And I don't mean sort of that throwaway phrase like self-care, right? Um, so, so of course, yes, we can all take a walk, we can take a bath, we can read a book, we can connect and call friends, really important. Um, but I think that the best thing we can do for self-care is to be kind to ourselves. And what we say to ourselves isn't always kind or true or helpful. And so I had this therapy client who did not believe me when I noticed how self-critical she was. And I said, I want you to go home and write down everything you say to yourself in the course of a few days and come back to me and then we'll talk. And she comes back and she says, I am such a bully to myself. I had no idea. And it was little things that we all do. Like she made a mistake on something, like a really minor mistake. And she said to herself, you are so stupid, you're an idiot, right? Just how we talk to ourselves. If your friend made that same mistake, you would not think your friend was stupid or an idiot. Um, you know, just we get up in the morning and we look in the mirror and we say, God, I look terrible, right? These 
all day long we are just insulting ourselves, criticizing ourselves, or just during COVID, right? You didn't get certain things done. Well, it's not realistic to get things done in the normal way right now. And so, you know, instead of praising ourselves, we're saying, wow, I'm really glad that I got these five things done today, or these two things done today. We focus on the things we didn't get done, and then we berate ourselves. And how does that relate to the teenager in your house? (laughs) So it relates to the teenager because if you're doing that to yourself, you're going to be more anxious and your anxiety is going to be felt throughout the house. And also you are not modeling good self-care for your kids, right? So how do your kids learn how to regulate their emotions, to manage their emotions, to sit with the discomfort? If we can't do that well, then they're not going to be able to do that well. So one thing I say with kids is your kids will come to you and they're going to have all kinds of feelings about what's going on. And this applies both to COVID and, and normal times. Um, and what we normally do as parents is we either try to fix the situation for them or we try to talk them out of their feelings. So they say, I'm really worried about this. And we say, oh, don't worry about that. It'll be okay. Or they say, like, I'm really sad about this. And they say, oh, don't be sad about this. Let's go have some ice cream. Let's go get frozen yogurt, right? Um, and um, and so what we're doing is we're telling them, we're sending the message that it's not okay to feel these things. Um, we need to get rid of those feelings. What do adults do to get rid of those feelings? Too much food, too much wine, um, not enough sleep, you know, a short-temperedness, uh, that mindless scrolling through the internet where you're like, what just happened? You know, um, when I was training to be a therapist, one of my clinical supervisors said that the internet is the most effective short-term non-prescription painkiller out there. And our kids see us doing that and they do it too. So what can you do with your kids instead? You can use three words and these are three very simple words and they work like magic. And when your kid is talking to you about something, you say, tell me more. And then they tell you more. And then you keep saying that. When, what Somebody once said that, you know, when I was training, you have two ears and one mouth. There's a reason for that ratio. I think as a parent, that has been the most useful thing. I use that more as a parent than even as a therapist. Because when your kid tells you more, they are hearing themselves think. And what you find is that all of us, have a place of knowing inside of us. Like we know what to do, but we need someone to sit with us in our discomfort so that we don't feel so alone. And usually that voice of knowing is so quiet because it gets drowned out by our parents, the culture, their friends, whatever it is. And so they can't hear themselves. And if you just sit with them in that space and say, tell me more, oh, tell me about that. They can hear themselves and that voice becomes much louder. Wow, that's um, like very profound, Lori. I have four little girls who are ages six, four, three, and one. And my six-year-old is really just starting to talk about feelings in a big way and ask big, hard questions. And I think the tell me more thought pattern is a really good one for parents of young kids too. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Because we don't give them enough credit. Your six-year-old will have incredible ideas about her life, how she feels, what she should do, how she should solve something, how she can manage something that she's struggling with. Um, So let her, give her the space to really voice that. You talked about your childhood and stick figures, and um, you've also talked about your adult life in your most recent book. Have you always been comfortable sharing your personal vulnerability so publicly? 
you if you read, maybe you should talk to someone, you know that um, originally I was supposed to write a book about parenting based on this article that I'd written called How to Land Your Kid in Therapy. And then I was supposed to write this happiness book about adults. And I decided, you know, I just couldn't write this happiness book. And so I canceled the happiness book. And I said, I'm going to write a book. I'm just going to bring people into the therapy room. You know, I had this impulse when it, when the publisher got really excited about it, that maybe I should clean myself up a little bit now that maybe more people would be reading it. But I didn't clean myself up. And I think that that's why so many people are reading it is because it's very real. It's very raw. It's very authentic. And I think that people see themselves in that. And I think that if I had not been so vulnerable in the book, that um, that it wouldn't have had that effect on people. Did that vulnerability translate to any awkward situations in the real world? You know, I keep my writing life very separate from what happens in the therapy room. And so when I was going on book tour for this book, um, I just told people I'm going to be away on such and such dates and here's who's on call for me and I'll see you back on that date. And when I came back, so many people came in and they sat on my couch and they said, so I read your book, right? So... <laughs> Um, because they consume, you know, all the media where, where they had seen it when it was launched. And, um, and it was interesting because I think we, you know, we ended up having these really deep conversations, not so much about me, but about them and their relationship to me, because the book is very relational. It's very much about, you know, that there's this real relationship happening between the therapist and the client that is different from the real world, but also in many ways, incredibly intimate. Um, and so, you know, there was one awkward situation where somebody came in to see me for a consultation and about 30 minutes into the consultation, they had said the the book is being made into a television series. And at the time um, it was being shot for a television series and uh, the person came in and, and we're having just this normal session. And then the person says, Oh, by the way, I read your book because it was submitted to our company for television. And that, was incredibly awkward because I don't want to mix those two worlds in any way. Now, you used to be in television as a development executive and you made a giant career switch and chose to go to medical school. So many people think about doing things like that, but then never do. What gave you the courage to do that? You know, it's interesting because when I look back at it, I always say I was either very versatile or very confused. When I was in my 20s, right after I graduated from college, I worked in film development and then I moved over to network television. And when I was, the, the two shows that were launching the year that I got to NBC were Friends and ER. So it was a very good year for NBC. And I was like the junior executive, you know. <laughs> and um, so to me, it was it was really fun because, you know, you're, you're with doing working on these great shows. And we had this consultant who was uh, an emergency room physician who worked on ER. And I spent so much time in the ER with him that at a certain point he said to me, you know, I think you like it better here than you like your day job. You should go to medical school. And I should just say that I was a French major in college. <laughs> um, so, you know, it wasn't like, yeah, that, that's the right move. Um, but I was always very kind of, you know, math science as well. And, um, and so I did. I, I, I left my job and I went to medical school. And people thought that was insane. They were like, why would you do that? 
right? And then I got to medical school and it was, I went up to Stanford for medical school and it was like, you know, the dot-com boom was happening and, um, and everybody was like, you know, why would you want to be a doctor? Managed care, you can't see patients the way you want to see patients. And, and I ended up writing when I was in medical school and I left to become a journalist. And I felt like, like I left to really tell people stories. I was always interested in story and the human condition. And people said, you got into Stanford Medical School. How could you leave that? Just finish, just finish medical school, just have the degree. And I'm like, why? And so, um, and so I became a journalist and then, you know, I was a journalist and I still am, but I was, I was a journalist for about 10 years when I had my child. And I remember this, just the intense need to talk to other adults during the day about things that were not diapers. And so when the UPS guy would come with the deliveries, I would literally detain him and I would be like, hey, do you have kids? And, you know, like, you know, what's the weather like out there? And he would try to avoid me. He would back <laughs> away to his truck or he would literally at a certain point, even if there was signature required, he would tiptoe to my door, leave the package and just leave it there so I wouldn't hear him and I would not open the door and bother him. And so I realized I need to do something about this. So I called up the dean at Stanford and I said, maybe I should come back and do psychiatry. And she said, you're welcome to come back, but then you would be doing like internship and residency with a toddler and you would be doing a lot of medication management as a psychiatrist. Why don't you get a graduate degree in clinical psychology and do the deeper work that you've always been interested in? And it was that kind of advice when I say listening to other people, it was that kind of advice where that made sense. And that's exactly what I did. And I have this hybrid career where I feel like I went from telling people stories as a journalist to helping people to change their stories as a therapist. And I use both, like I use my work as a therapist in my writing and I use my work as a writer, as a therapist. And I think they're very complementary and, and meaningful. And so I think at the end of the day, you say, what, where's my purpose, right? And, and where's the meaning? And for me, what I'm really trying to do is democratize therapy to really open up these conversations around emotional health and make sure that people prioritize it. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am, like I am, where it is. This isn't going to work. I, I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how, I don't know where, I don't know what. God, if you show me, God, if you tell me, God, if, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. 
Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s. She looked like a million bucks. With zero qualifications. She had a Harvard plaque. Tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. That this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately eleven million dollars. Nearly ten million dollars was all gone. Employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich man, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, season five, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You've talked about change and freedom as being common themes in one's story of their lives. Do you think that women see change and freedom differently than men? Women can be very averse to change. And women don't always feel like they deserve the freedom. And change and freedom go hand in hand. So you see the dilemma that women are in. So a lot of times people come to therapy and they say, I want something to change. But what they want to change is like someone else or something else out there. And what you're really there to do in therapy is to change yourself, is to have more agency and be able to make decisions around your life that align with the kind of life that you want to live. And women don't feel like they have permission to do that as much as men do. But but here's where women are a little bit more free than men. And that's where men will come in and at a certain point they will say, you know, I've never told anyone this before, Mm -hmm. right? Because they don't have permission to be vulnerable. Women will come in and they'll say, you know, I've never told anyone this before, except for my sister, except for my mother, except for my best friend. So they actually have told maybe one, two or three people because they have permission to do that. And so in couples therapy, how this plays out is that if I'm seeing a man and a woman, let's say, And the woman says, you know, I really want to get inside your inner life. I really want to understand you more. I feel like there's this like gulf between us. Please share with me what's going on in there. And so then he does. And let's say he starts crying. And let's say he starts really crying. 
like not like a tear, but he's like, you know, shaking and crying. And, you know, we all know what the ugly cry looks like. Right. And she will inevitably look at me like deer in headlights. And the message is, I don't feel safe when you don't connect with me in this way, when I can't really connect with you on this emotional level. But I also don't feel safe when you go too far. It's kind of like Goldilocks. And I think that's where culturally we women have some work to do because we talk about patriarchy a lot. And what I think is really important is how do you topple the patriarchy? You topple the patriarchy by allowing men to be vulnerable. So men have work to do that they need to get grant. You know, we need to say we are we are demanding that we have the freedom to change and to do what we want. But men are saying in different ways, but we're also in jail in a different way. And we we need your permission for this. I love that. You topple the patriarchy by allowing men to be vulnerable. That's really brilliant. We When we talked to um, Glennon Doyle and Abby Wambach, they had a similar sentiment about uh, sensitivity in men and what that narrow box that we put men in that is as, you know, I'm raising a boy as well. And it breaks my heart when I hear someone say man up or, you know, be a man or it just, it, it breaks you. It just, it, it's terrible. And it, it hurts a generation of women and men when we do that. I have a weekly column called Dear Therapist in the Atlantic. And then I also have like the Dear Therapist podcast, right? So I'm doing a lot with sort of people's emotions. And now that my son is home, he hears it all because, you know, he's like, it's like my work life is very transparent to him now yeah. in a way that before he was just not paying attention. And so, <laughs> So now he'll be like, what's your column about? And he'll talk to me and he'll say, here's what I think. And he's, you know, I think it's great because I think so often we think, oh, women are interested in this or, or my, you know, my daughter might be interested in this, but my son wouldn't be interested in this. But no, boys have such a deep well and they don't have anywhere to go with it. And so when I listen to him talk about, well, here's what I think is happening and here's the emotional aspect of this and here's what I think is happening with this person and here's what I would suggest... And you say, wow, wouldn't it, wouldn't the world be a great place if these conversations were just normal? Like everybody, it wasn't like well, a child of a therapist. All of the people that your son is going to interact with throughout the rest of his life, they're lucky because they benefit from the way you're raising him. When I was uh, hosting a call-in radio show and people would call in with their problems, one of my favorite things to do is at the dinner table on Tuesday nights, which was the day I hosted, I would say, well, here was the big problem. And I'd make it you know, G-rated. And I would go around the table and ask my three kids to each tell me how they would solve it. And their age, obviously, their perspective all were tied into it. But it was fascinating to hear how they think about problems and then also to let your son know that his opinion matters to you. I mean, how few kids get that that access to their parents who are actually really listening to them. It's it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And I see that also just raising a boy where just, you know, he's a basketball player. And I just, over the years, every time, like, someone would get really hurt and people would say, oh, just get up, dust it off, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and they don't do that to girls, right? It's like, if you're in pain, you're allowed to say, it hurts, I'm in pain. And we don't allow men to do that. Now, there's so many things that women aren't allowed to do. You know, that, that's the other side of it. But I think that when everybody is allowed to just be authentically who they are, it benefits everybody. That's so true. My daughter is a ninth grade basketball player also. And I will say that they tell her to just brush it off and get back up. So I think that's one of the amazing things about girls in sports is that you develop that. It's interesting. My husband, so I have all daughters, 
and they're very little, but my husband was a college ho- ice hockey player. I'm an athlete. I played water polo. And it's interesting to watch him because rather than he, – he's an amazing father and he lets our girls feel things. But when they fall down at the playground, he's very much of like, get up, dust it off, don't worry about it. Because he wants them to be, you know, in his mind, tough. And it's, it's just – it's complicated, right? Like we're trying to raise girls to compete in a world that is still dominated by the patriarchy. We need to teach boys how to be more sensitive. Like it's just – there's a lot of work to be done. Right. So I think that there's this question of like what does tough mean? What does mm-hmm. strength mean? And that's where the confusion is. So your kid falls down at the playground. There's the parent who, and this is what I don't recommend, the parent who is like, oh, my gosh, are you okay? Oh, no, come over here, right? Because the kid's actually fine. And then you're sending the message to the kid, wait a minute, you know, like, I'm not okay, even though the kid is totally okay. So you have to see, like, what is their reaction? So attunement is watch for their reaction. Don't give them your reaction. You see your kid get hurt, take a beat, take a breath, watch what they do. They might look to you like, oh, am I okay? And you just smile at them, right? And then they might say like, oh, I'm okay. Or they might say, actually, mom, I'm not sure my wrist hurts or whatever. And they say, okay, let's take a look at it. See the difference there. You know, we're always sort of, I say in the book, I talk about the hierarchy of pain, that we think there's this hierarchy of pain and that you can't talk about certain kinds of pain because they don't count. Even during COVID, like people will say, well, my loss isn't loss of life, loss of a job. So I can't feel any loss. I can't feel any sadness, anxiety, anything. And and then what happens is people just don't feel, they try not to feel. Um, and so, you know, I think it's really interesting because when people talk about, let's say that you broke your arm, people aren't like, oh, somebody else has cancer, so I'm not gonna go to the doctor and get a cast for my arm. But if something has happened, feels off like emotionally for you, or you're in pain emotionally, people say, well, my pain isn't as bad as whatever you compare it to. And so I'm not going to get help. And then people don't land in my office until they're having the equivalent of an emotional heart attack. And at that point, it's harder to treat because now you're in a different place and you've suffered unnecessarily for however long. So to me, a sign of strength and being tough is saying, wow, something's not working right now. I'm going to go get help. I'm going to be proactive about this. I love that. And One of the things that I loved about your TED Talk was when you talked about everyone being an editor of their own life and that you have this opportunity to tell your story in multiple ways. And you talked about democratizing therapy. So if our listener right now wants to help edit their life, what are the steps they can take without sitting in your office to do that? You know, we all have blind spots and where we get in trouble is we can't see something that we're doing. And so I write in the book about the difference between like idiot compassion and wise compassion. So idiot compassion is what we do for our friends. So your friend comes to you and says, here's what happened with my coworker, my partner, you know, my mother, whatever it is. And we say, yeah, that's terrible. You're right. They're wrong. How dare they? <laughs> that is not helpful. That is idiot compassion. Wise compassion is what we do in therapy, we hold up a mirror to you and help you to see something about yourself that maybe you haven't been willing or able to do. And so for people who, you know, go to therapy, that's what they get. They get what I like to say is a really good second opinion on their lives from someone who isn't in their life right now. You know, and and what you start to see is these patterns, like if a fight breaks out in every bar you're going to, maybe it's you. Your friend doesn't say that in idiot compassion. Your therapist will, not using those words. What can we do instead. Well, one of the reasons that I wrote, maybe you should talk to someone is that I told it through the lens of these four people's stories, because the reason that people don't want to hear what it is that's holding them back is because of shame. 
So you say you're like this or you do this. And all of a sudden we go into a shame spiral. We're like, oh God, we think, you know, and, and we just feel so like embarrassed, right? Because we don't think it's okay to be human. And so when you read about these stories, so many people have said, I see myself in that story, or I do that, or I'm like that. And there's not as much shame because you realize, A, you're not the only one, other people do it. And B, oh, wow, it's kind of funny that human beings are ridiculous. And if we can laugh at ourselves and take our lives seriously, but not take ourselves too seriously, that's when we make room for, oh, I can see this and I'm going to do something differently now. You wrote a lot, and maybe you should talk to someone about your own life in addition to the four patients and your love life. What is your love life like today? So it's funny that so many people want to know that. It's almost like getting the, the end of the story, right, or the sequel. Right. I feel um, like I'm just, and, like, sliding the question I in, know, but truly, and, and, I want to know. <laughs> and and all of it's so funny because all of my patients, the agreement that I made with them was that they, they were fine with my writing about that period in their lives, but there were no, they didn't want me to sort of talk in the media about updates. Now I can say whatever I want about myself, but I feel like because I'm a therapist that I shared what I wanted to share in the book and that I don't want to give, you know, sort of current updates on my personal life in that way because I'm seeing patients. And I think that that really does affect people that I, I, I feel like there is value in telling what you want to tell for the people who have read the book, but also really making sure that the focus is on the people that I see. That makes sense. I'll try again five different ways, but I'll accept the answer for now. But <laughs> you're just then you're a good therapist. That, that's what a therapist does. Well, we try five different ways. <laughs> but speaking of stories, you said in your TED Talk that you have a folder in your email inbox. The daily problems of living, yes. The daily problems of living. We talk about freedom and change, but what are kind of themes of problems that people have in their lives? If I were to do a taxonomy of people's problems, right? There are the problems, you know, if I look at the letters that I get at, at the Dear Therapist call and the letters that I get at the Dear Therapist podcast, the themes that come out are, how can I love and be loved? Big theme um, in every way, shape and form, right? So anything you can imagine around relationships. I would say most of the letters have to do with connection in some way, whether it's like a parent estranged from a child, it's a romantic relationship, whether it's a sibling relationship, um, whether it's a relationship at work and, and often relationship to self. So I think that people forget about that piece, which is you can't have a good relationship with other people if you don't have a good relationship with yourself. All right. We're going to finish up with our lightning round before we go to Lou Burns, who offers our male perspective. And we'll come in at the end with one final question. Amy, take it away with the lightning round. What are you reading? I am rereading Olive again, which is the sequel to Olive Kitteridge, because I feel like there is so much psychological truth and humanity in these characters. Who in your life makes you feel most understood? My best friend from college. Where does she She's, live? She lives in Chicago, but she is, she is my, my ride or die friend. Wow. Oh, my ride or die is in Chicago, too. We should take a collective trip to the Midwest. We should, yeah. <laughs> and if you could give therapy to any celebrity, who would it be? Ooh, Natalie Portman. Why? Why? <laughs> That's a shocking answer. Why? <laughs> because I think that she is such an interesting person. And 
I, you know, there's different kinds of therapy, right? There's therapy like there's a crisis and someone comes in for a specific problem and then there's sort of the deeper work. And I think she's so smart and thoughtful and I would love to kind of delve into the deeper work with her. I will say that when I went on, um, when I went on Fresh Air uh, with Terry Gross, she said to me right before we went on, she said, I just want to let you know that I'm in therapy. I don't know if I'm going to bring it up. And all I could think about for the first five minutes of the interview was Terry Gross is in therapy. What do they talk about during her therapy <laughs> sessions? Right. So Terry Gross would be my second would be that that would be the person I'd like to see in therapy. All right. We're going to bring on Lou. Hi, Lou. Uh, hi, everybody. Hi, Lori. Hi there. I want to first off by starting off by, um, Thanking you so much for your amazing work that you do. Uh, me being a recovering addict, I've I've seen lots of therapists and I've had lots of counselors, and uh, I attribute my success now uh, into into being a better person from people like you to deliver perspective and also help, you know, in in a true truly amazing way. Um, but right now, I'm in the biggest growth curve of my life. Amy and Sam have has allowed me to get more in touch with my feelings um, by giving me a perspective that I've, I've really just been kind of disconnected from, which is like the struggles of women. You know, I'm a man. I don't, I don't have to worry about sexual abuse or, or being like, you know, disrespected when I walk down the street, stuff like that. And this is something that I didn't even realize I was closed off from. So my question to you is, is actually um, how can we ask questions in a way where we can actually get a response and not have to always try to read through the fine stuff. That's one of my questions because I, will, I will actually want to apply that into my daily life when I'm talking to people, asking questions so I can actually get that, get that real answer from them instead of all the fluff. Yeah. So what you're really asking is a question about listening. And I think what you're really asking is how do you listen? Because when you're a good listener, that's how you get people to really connect with you and share with you, right? And be vulnerable with you. And so it's really interesting because as most of us don't really ask the person, what do they need in that moment from us when people want to talk with us, right? So, and, and we see this all the time where, um, you know, so many times people will come to you and what we do is we try to solve something for them or fix it for them, or we want to offer our unsolicited advice. Um, and it just shuts them down. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so, and, and I will say again, a gross generalization, but I will say men do this more than women where, where we, you know, they, they feel like, Oh wait, here's how I can help you. And they really feel like they're being helpful, but it's quite unhelpful. Mm. So one thing you can do is you can say, you know, I'm, I'm here and I want to be here for you. Tell me how I can help you in this, just in this conversation. Right. And, and if you can just say to them, like, as they're talking, instead of trying to make it better for them, like, oh, don't worry about that. Or, oh, it's okay. If you can say to them, just like, tell me more about that or ask them an open-ended question about that. Um, or just say, yeah, like, I get it. Right. Or, or, oh, that must be hard if you don't get it, if you haven't been there. Don't. So I think it's about being an authentic listener too. So, you know, don't say you get something that you don't actually get because that will make them feel shut down. Like, no, you have no idea. You know, like someone will say like, I had this really horrible experience and it was life changing. And you're like, yeah, I get that. But you don't. So you can say, oh my God, that sounds so hard. And then stop talking. <laughs> so it's like we use too many words. So it's really about 
truly listening, not thinking about what you're going to say next. So many, so many, and I will say men again, but, but, you know, men and women do this. What I notice in men is because they've been, it's not because men are trying to not listen. It's because they've been conditioned culturally to be this way, you see? And so we need to uncondition them. So what men will do is they'll formulate in their head, okay, how can I be helpful? What can I do right now? I got to do, I got to act. I got to, you know, and, and what happens is they're not actually listening because they're busy thinking about how they can fix this, how they can make the other person feel better. And so if I mean, men aren't used to just like that space of, okay, so yeah, oh, that sounds horrible. That sounds like it was so hard. And just being, just letting the person know, I see you, I hear you, I understand you. Thank, Thank you. you so much Thank for that so response. Oh, my pleasure. I can tell you're a good listener, by the way. <laughs> yeah. I appreciate it. So I think it's going to be a race to the finish line. Who's going to get back into therapy first, you or me? (laughs) (laughs) I think so. Thank you for listening. This has been What's Her Story with Sam and Amy, and it is powered by our companies, my company, Park Place Payments, which you can find at parkplacepayments.com, and Amy's company, The Riveter, which you can find at theriveter.co. We want to give a special thanks to our production team at Large Media, L-A-R-J, and our podcast associate, Emma Hard, and our male perspective, Lou Burns. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope if you liked locatora before you're gonna love season nine subscribe to our show and you'll see why locatora is your prima's favorite podcast listen to locatora radio as part of the michael Cultura podcast network available on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. 
Listen to Woke F Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.